So, we've been looking at worship. So the, the core values are grace, the arrow goes down, we experience God's grace at the moment of salvation. And then the arrow goes up, which is the response to God's grace, which is worship. And we looked at Psalm 100, where God is sovereign over all, and the reason that we praise him is he is faithful to us, and he has been faithful to us. If we really think about all the blessings that God has given us, and how many times he has bailed us out, and how many times he has helped us, we can certainly say that he is faithful. I preached this a while back, but uh, there's two dynamics that are involved in worship. One is obviously praising him and giving thanks and glory, and also telling about the great things that God has done in your life and in your heart. But the second dynamic of worship is preaching. We do that every Sunday. Uh, I always use the Bible. And so when we think about worship, we have these two dimensions. We have praising him, but we also have preaching about him. And this, this text today is hands down one of my top five uh, because I take it personally. So really this sermon's about me today, so it's all about me. No, it's not. But it is about me because it's a reminder to me of how I'm supposed to preach, why I preach, and then on a broader scale, what the congregation's response is to the message and to Christ. And so let's start by looking a little bit of background here. You have uh, the Apostle Paul. He is the author of it, 64, 67 A.D. Timothy is in Ephesus. He's working with the, with the leadership there. Uh, the origin, this was Paul's second imprisonment in Rome. You might have guessed that this is going to be Paul's last. So it's very personal. Paul is going to pass the baton now to a young pastor named Timothy. He'll go on to say that I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. My time is at hand. I have kept the faith. I have finished the course. And there is waiting for him a crown of righteousness and glory. So very personal. And Paul comes back to something that is extremely important to him. And he realizes that if this is violated, the church will be in trouble. And so... The purpose was that the church is in danger of internal heresy. Not external, but internal heresy. And so he tells Timothy, listen, this is what I want you to do. I've saved this, uh, this important message for chapter 4. It's the final chapter, by the way. Um, he saves it here and he says, Timothy, this is what I want you to do. And then he launches into what I would call... Uh, preaching the word. But how do you deal with heresy? As you go back and you read 2 Timothy, it's, it's there. Uh, first of all, sound theology. Churches must have sound theology. Secondly, you deal with it by godly living. How we live our lives, there's a, there's a theological application going here, but there's also a practical application going here. And then lastly, an organized church. Uh, 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy, that was the actual order that they were written. 
all of these are talking about organizing the church. So there needs to be a church constitution, there needs to be bylaws, there needs to be... People say, we don't really need that. An organized church will cut down on major issues that will arise during ministry because we all know that none of us are perfect. Therefore, we need some boundaries and some guidelines. So as we look at two points, first of us, uh, first of all, is preach the word, and it comes with a warning. I charge you, he tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ. The word charge, demartuomai, demartuomai, means to admonish or instruct, but it also has the idea of a future implication. So Paul here is saying, look, I'm charging you, something's coming in the future, but I'm charging you with it because I'm getting ready to go see Jesus. And I want to leave the church in a good spot and with sound preachers that have sound theology. So I'm going to leave this to you, Timothy. Here's the baton. I'm going to charge you and admonish you for something that is coming down the pike. He says in the presence of, which literally means in front of or before someone. It is a reminder to Timothy that his mission is not lived in isolation. In fact, none of our ministries in the church are lived in isolation. We do our ministries, we live our lives in the presence of God and of Christ. And it should be a good reminder to us. And by the way, if we pull up First Peter. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. He is attentive to their prayers. That goes on to say, he is attentive to their prayers, but his face is against those who do evil. So it's a good reminder to us as we live our Christian lives that we are living it in the presence of Christ and God. But more importantly, to Timothy who is now going to be charged with, with preaching the word. Now, the purpose of it is that Christ is going to come and judge the living and the dead. Klino is the word for judge, which means to examine or to evaluate. So see, there's coming a day when the living and the dead, and we can interpret this means those that have already passed and those that are living and when Christ comes back and the whole thing's at the end, he will judge both the living and the dead, those who are alive now and those who have already passed. There's coming a day when we will stand and give an account of our ministry. This is, this is pretty heavy stuff because Timothy is in Ephesus and he, Paul's telling him, look, you need to be serious about preaching the word. I like having fun in the pulpit. And sometimes I, I do make jokes and maybe some other things. But ultimately, the purpose of preaching is to lead people into a deeper relationship with Christ. It is also the purpose of preaching to encourage and challenge people to live out the truths being communicated. 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to be evaluated. And by, Paul goes on to write, and by his appearing and his kingdom. 
So there's this inspection that's going to take place. And Paul is telling Timothy, you have to be prepared for that inspection. Uh, this week, these are airborne rangers. And what this uh, leader is doing is he is checking the parachutes. Now there's an obvious reason for checking the parachutes. Uh, several reasons. One is it would be disastrous if you were to jump, and it, it does happen occasionally where uh, even after a close inspection that uh, some parachutes don't open and it's quite tragic. But can you imagine? Think of it this way, spiritually. We're not inspecting ourselves and then we are going to leap into the great unknown. And this is exactly what Paul is communicating to Timothy. It's very important to watch because we are going to be inspected. There's going to come in my ministry, your ministry, your life is going to be inspected. And so we have to prepare for that. We have to be ready for that. But in specific for Timothy, he says, listen, basically, you are going to be judged on your preaching. I take that personally. In fact, I want this inscribed on my gravestone, these two verses, because it's so important. I, years ago, when I was in Bible college, it was in Dr. Windsor's class, and we were talking about sermon structure and outline and how, to, how the sermons developed. And I just remember in class saying, Lord, make me the best preacher that I can be with your guidance and direction. And that was my, that was my, I fell in love with it. I fell in love with the sermon process. And I've always tried to study the word and maybe sometimes I've made mistakes. There's mistakes that are grammatical mistakes or whatever, but ultimately I can truthfully say this morning that my heart is bent right. That my goal here is not to beat people, but to build people. And we'll get into the methodology here in just a minute. I, I, I saw this when I, was, when I was looking through a vast array of images. Uh, I saw this, Jesus is coming, look busy. <laughs> uh, it's not just about looking busy, but it's about being busy doing his work. And there's a, there's a big difference. Now he gets into what I call the method. How is the pastor supposed to preach? Well, look at verse 2. Simple phrase, preach the word. Keruso, and I love the definition here. To publicly announce, that's what we're doing here. We're in the midst of a, of a congregation to publicly announce religious truths and principles. So when the pastor stands up, he'll go through and he'll look at some basic principles that can be drawn after a proper exegesis has been done and after the context of the passage has been explored so that you don't misinterpret or mis, uh, missay something that is not quite right to publicly announce truths and principles while urging 
acceptance and compliance. So you have this, within this preach the word, you have the, the two lines here. One is to preach principles of the Bible and then encourage and urge the congregation or the hearer to respond. This will be flipped in verse 3 and 4. This will be flipped. But here he says, I want you to preach the word, logos. That can refer to Christ. He is called logos. Uh, but here it's probably a reference to the message or more importantly, probably to the gospel message. So Timothy is to preach the word. And we're so fortunate. Pastors today are so fortunate. We don't need to come up with our own words. <laughs> the Bible's right here. And as we extract the words, what each word means and find its context, we are so blessed. You don't need to really add anything to it. You may add some illustrations, or, which, by the way, illustrations have been around since the first century. That was one course I took with Dr. Grant Osborne. We had to go back and look at the exegesis from the first century, how the first century fathers like Origen and those interpreted scripture, and we had to go all the way through to the present, and then we had to present a paper on how the exegesis has changed through the scriptures. Illustrations have been around for years. Dr. Windsor, used to, I still got it up in my office. Dr. Windsor made us take three by five cards and every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, we had to come to class and we had to write out one illustration with the theme on top, like faithfulness, and write out the illustration and he made us read those in class. And that would be part of our grade. And then we'd take those files. I've still got a file up there. And you put it down in your file and you have it for when you need a faithful illustration. And he made us do that. Uh, and it was a very good way of doing it. But he tells Timothy, preach the word. Your mandate is to preach, to announce publicly and then to encourage acceptance or, or living that out. This is to be ready in season and out of season. Uh, by the way, be ready is a feast to me, which is difficult to translate in the Greek, but it carries the idea of urgency. It carries the idea of urgency. Um, Griffin, in his commentary, writes this, the command implies that each Christian leader must always be on duty and take advantage of every opportunity for service. If you go to verse 5, as for you, always be sober-minded, enduring, uh, suffering, do the work of evangelists, fulfill your ministry. He's telling him, in light of this context, that what you need to do is be ready. Now, the issue surrounds in-season, out-of-season. It seems to be an, uh, an uh, agricultural metaphor. And the metaphor can be translated two possible ways. One is when it's convenient or not. But the better way, how I like to interpret it, and many other scholars interpret it, is this. When it's popular or when it's not popular. And so sometimes, uh, I've had way back in my first church, I remember uh, a family said, we will not be here next Sunday. And I said, why, why not? He said, 
we're already looking ahead to what you're preaching on and we don't want to we don't want to listen to it that's when it's not popular and sometimes I get it the message isn't popular it's usually something that is going on in your life that you really don't want to deal with or you don't want to hear and that's okay that's all right but you should listen to the message and kind of internalize it and decide okay do I need to do this or do I not need to do this and sometimes it's not going to be popular and sometimes it will be popular one of my favorite preachers uh, and I think one of the great mouthpieces of our generation is John MacArthur uh, I love his style, and by the way, I've got a nice little video at the end of this, so I can early and put John on, and we can just go with it. John MacArthur does not hold back, and that's what I like about him. He's, he's not afraid to preach the truth, and uh, I just love his style. Uh, he does have a sense of humor. I like it. But John MacArthur is, I think, one of the best preachers today. There's a lot of preachers out there. I still think John MacArthur is ahead of all of them. Uh, don't always agree with uh, a couple of his theological points, but overall, uh, I think God has richly blessed him. Now, here he says, be ready in season, out of season. This is where it gets treacherous a little bit. Now listen, the word reprove means to state that somebody has done something wrong. Okay, now... That should be in the midst of a congregation. You don't go, Sally, I know this is you. That's not how this works. Because he has to preach to a congregation. But every sermon should have some dynamic of showing a wrong way to look at something and a right way to look at something. Then he uses the word rebuke, which expresses strong disapproval. The third word, which is often overlooked, is exhort, which means to encourage, encourage someone to live out the message. So the, the flow is like this. Show a wrong way of doing something. Express this is not how we live. And then this is the right way to live. And then encourage them to live it out. I've heard preachers they pound and they pound and they pound and there's never any encouragement. Way back yonder, this revivalist came to our church. He was okay, but man, he just beat the congregation up. And I just don't think that's appropriate. And there's some really legalistic preachers that will make you believe that you're lost. Just because you might go get an ice cream at an ice cream store, you might be lost. That is not preaching. That is guilt preaching. We don't do that. We should never do that. Now, there are times when, yes, this is how we live, and if you're not living that way, maybe get on God's side and start living that way. There's just a lot of ways of saying things. And there's, there's a lot of ways of, of doing things. 
Here's the issue for preachers, and I've, I've, had, I've struggled with this myself. Not only be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort, here's the issue, with complete patience. We as pastors must allow God time to work on the hearts of his people. As a younger, as a younger pastor, uh, I struggled with this patience. You mean you don't get it? You should get it by now. My wife always tells me, why do you repeat yourself three or four times? And I said, because maybe one of those times it'll stick. I don't know. But you always, rep, repetition, this is what I learned too. Repetition breeds retention. So Newt Larson always told us to say the same thing three different ways. This is how you're to live. This is how you're not to live. By the way, if you're doing this, then you need to be doing this. And you say it three different ways. So that eventually, one of those would stick with the congregation. Patience. You know, you think about life. You know God's patient with you, right? You all know God's patient with you. The, the, the pastor should have the same approach to his congregation that you need to be patient. And with careful instruction. I, I highlighted this. Instruction, teaching is the primary mission of the sermon, not just to beat people up. Because ultimately, those pastors that beat people up are probably guilty of some of the things that they're preaching. And so you have to be very careful I always try to enter this pulpit with the attitude of, Lord, help me instruct your sheep today so that they can become more like you and less like the world. That's, that's, a, that's, a, good, that's a good approach. I would encourage any young pastor to come with that. So here you have preached the word. We looked at the warning and we looked at the method. And the reason, and the second thing is to uphold sound doctrine. Look at verse 3. It should jump off the page at you. Look at verse 3. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine. That's today. That's today. Look how many denominations are crumbling. Because they have left the base of theology. I know that the Methodist church is now starting to see that they've gone way, 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 way away from the scripture. And now some of them are breaking off. I'm starting to see a pushback now of denominations that say, wait a minute, we, we can't, this is not right. This is not in scripture. By the way, John Wesley would have a fit if he knew what was happening taking place inside the Methodist church. Not just the Methodists, it's Presbyterians, it's some Baptist. Uh, we may have our own little thing coming down the road. I'm starting to see a little issue develop with women in the pulpit. Uh, I'm going to say this. Uh, you can go read 2 Timothy, Titus. Women have no business in the pulpit. They're not pastors. They're certainly not over the congregations. They, that's, that's not biblical. So that, that tells me right there that that denomination or whoever's ordaining women to the pulpit. Not that I'm against women. I love women. I'm married to one. 
But she should not be preaching. Uh, Beth Moore got a little too big for herself. She said, I'm renouncing the Southern Baptist because the Southern Baptist said, you can't do that. And so she said, I'm done with Southern Baptist. She thinks she's a preacher. She's not. She, well, she just does women's stuff. But there's men in the congregation. And so that becomes an issue. Anyway. Time is coming when they will not insert, endure sound teaching. Endure anekomai, which means they will not accept or receive something as the truth. I don't want to hear it. You could, they say it this way. Tell it to the hand. Because I'm not listening. And so what happens is the culture has begun to influence the church. The church is afraid to take a stand on biblical basic issues. And so we're in that day. This is, it has arrived. And I tell you what, it is worse than it's ever been in my lifetime. But thankfully, there are some people pushing back on this. Finally. Why won't people accept sound doctrine? Let me give you some pastoral theology, which is separate from biblical theology. And I think one reason that people will not accept truth is because it challenges something that they're doing in their life that they know is not right. So they don't want to listen to it. You don't want to listen to it. And so they rebel against that, and they, they start pressuring denominations to change their views. Another reason that uh, Susan Johnson, uh, I just remember that book I had to read. It just, the professor wanted us to read it so that we knew what was going on in the feminist movement. And then I wrote a scathing review. <laughs> and out to the side, the professor put, be nice, be nice, be nice. The Bible is archaic and is negative towards women. That was her uptake. It's unabashedly she said, unabashedly a male-dominated book. It's interesting how she glazes over the fact that God told men to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Susan Johnson believes that there is no sex. The biological bounds have been stripped off. After all, Paul says... There's neither Greek, nor Jew, nor bond, nor free, nor male, nor female. We are all one in Christ. Misinterpreted the scripture. Okay, I have got to really get going to get out of here. Sound. They will not endure sound doctrine. Hugi Ayano. Hugi Ayano. And that means healthy. And actually, in the sense of bodily health, it's used. So I know most of you will agree with this wholeheartedly. Amen. <laughs> I like that. Well, I tell you what. You guys and gals know that is not healthy. But there are times when it's okay to have a hamburger. By the way, we're having hot dogs tonight with our trail life troop. I'm only going to eat one. 
Just so you know. That's not healthy. You can't live like that. That's not good for you. I know you don't want to hear this. I'm, I'm sorry, I got to throw it out there. This is healthy. Ugh. Actually, salmon, which I still have a problem with salmon, but it's loaded with omega-3s. All of these, these vegetables, the multigrain rice, all of this stuff is actually healthy for you. And so what it, Paul is saying here to Timothy is there's some people, some Christians, that want to live on junk food. They want, woo, they want the fun stuff. And people running around the church and jumping up and down with no theological base at all. All they want is tell me, tell me, tell me. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. <laughs> itching ears is a metaphor for tickling the ears. My friend and mentor Newt Larson wrote this in his commentary. Unfortunately, there are teachers and leaders who give people what they want to hear tickling their ears with curiosities that allow them to remain untouched by the transforming power of God's word. Let me give you some examples. My favorites, here's my list of favorite ear ticklers. Here it is. Number one, my boy Joe Osteen. Be the best you. He's got that pretty hair and has no theological training whatsoever. What does this even mean? Be your best self. God wants to bless you with financial prosperity. Come on. That's ear tickling. And he's got a massive church. If we wanted to grow this church, I'll start preaching. It's good. God's going to bless you. I'm not doing that. I'm not compromising the integrity of Scripture to do what this heretic's doing. And I do consider him a heretic. And I won't retract that. And if you're a Christian, you should not be listening to this. That's point. Number two, Kenneth Copeland. Google Kenneth Copeland and the airplane and watch the video. He looks demon-possessed. He's thanking his supporters for giving him a $20 million plane. He was confronted about that. Don't you say that. I'm like, whoa, that sounds satanic. These guys are leading people astray. They're telling their congregations what they want to hear. And Kenneth Copeland acts, you know, I did. I listened to a sermon recently that he preached, and I was like, how in the world? That tells me the sheep have no idea about the Bible. He takes one verse and goes in 90 different directions and talks about this and talks about that. I said, tell me the scripture. Show me in scripture. And he never did. He just spewing stuff out. It, yeah, okay, Lord. It kind of makes me mad. Because I know that there's faithful pastors around this nation that are preaching the truth. And we struggle financially. We struggle spiritually. We struggle with all this stuff. And this guy's living the high life. 
off your money and the congregation's money, squandering it to take trips to Hawaii 16 times. A trip to Hawaii, financed by his church. God forbid. Sorry, I got a little mad. God knows it, but he knows my heart's probably in the right place. Uh, here's another one. Jesse Duplantis. If you're listening to him, turn him off. He's one of those, God wants to bless you. I'll just tell you, these preachers say that you shouldn't be. Well, I, I would like to have a conversation with him and ask him, how come Jesus said, I have no place to lay my head? And yet you have a gold toilet in your bathroom. You know what they're doing? They're fleecing the flock. Yeah, it really burns my backside. Secondly, error, because I've got to get to the video. I want to get you out of here on time. And turn away from the truth and wander off into miss. Turn away is the idea of to change or to remove something. The truth that they're turning away from is aletheia, the truth of the gospel and Jesus Christ. Thomas Lay, in his commentary, writes this. Because they look for someone to soothe the itch rather than to satisfy the thirst, they would leave the truth without an awareness of their desertion. And here's the thing. When these false preachers preach, it sounds right. And it sounds right, so they go, maybe we should give this guy money. And some of them are oblivious because they don't know the scripture and may God get them out of these churches and start getting into something more foundational. Many who have turned from a commitment to the gospel in our time fall within the descriptions of these words. I have a video of John MacArthur and some of the names that John MacArthur drops here will surprise you will surprise you. I hope it plays loud enough. Well, all of that leads me to the star of the day, Joel Osteen. <laughs> I regret that he has replaced me on Larry King. It drives me completely nuts. Mike Horton in Christless Christianity, page 68, said uh, Osteen has achieved the dubious success of making the name it and claim it teaching of Kenneth Copeland and Benny Hinn mainstream. There's some truth in that, absolutely. Pat Robertson commends Joel Osteen. Of all people, Max Lucado, the largest selling Christian author, commends Joel Osteen. Ed Young Jr. commends Joel Osteen, Southern Baptist pastor, Dallas. That's pretty mainstream. Let me see if I can set the record straight. Joel Osteen is a pagan religionist, a legalist, and a quasi-pantheist. I'm not done. This is my pulpit. I can be here as long as I want. 
Now, on the other side of that, Jesus Christ is a footnote to satisfy his critics, thrown in at the end to get people off his back who are irritated by the absence of Christ in his ministry. And what is he saying? What is his message? We save ourselves from all the things we don't want, all the things that are wrong in our lives, by our own internal divine faith power. That's his whole operation. In his book, Your Best Life Now, and by the way, I want to hasten to say he's absolutely right. If you believe in what he says in that book, this will be your best life. It'll be a whole lot better than the next one. He is absolutely right. If, but if you want your best life now, go for his theology. If you want your best life forever, avoid it. What does he say in your best life now? He says that um, we are able to create by our faith and our words the dreams we dream and the desires we have. Health, wealth, happiness, success, all the same old, same old temporal things. Quote, if you develop an image of success, an image of health and abundance and joy and peace and happiness, nothing on earth will be able to hold those things from you. End quote. Here's another one. All of us are born for earthly greatness. You were born to win. You were born to be a champion. Tell that to the 20 handicapper. God wants you to live in abundance. He wants to give you the desires of your heart. Before we were formed, He prepared us to live abundant lives, to be happy, healthy, <clears throat> and whole. But when our thinking becomes contaminated, it is no longer in line with God's Word. By the way, when he says God's Word, he's not talking about the Bible. He's talking about what you believe to be intuitively the voice of God talking to you, telling you what you ought to be, creating your wish list. Get your thinking positive, he says, and he'll bring your desires to pass. He regards you as a strong, courageous, successful person. You are on your way to a new level of glory. Let me wrap this up. Preaching sound biblical sermons is a high priority. Preaching needs to be organized and properly presented. And the church must stand on strong 